Welcome to the Hannah Miller Show. And here she is, Hannah Miller. Outspokenly conservative and unashamedly Christian, this is Hannah Miller, and this is what happened this week. So I want to talk about South Dakota. We need to talk about South Dakota. This is the story we're going to camp on this week. I covered um, what happened in Maui and Lahaina last week, so we were actually able to get into that. I know it was a little bit rushed, and I wasn't sure we were going to be able to cover it, but we were. So this week, I just want to cover this one story, and uh, you probably haven't heard everything that's been going on in South Dakota, because it's not very exciting. But there's a point to me telling you all this, so just hang with me. South Dakota citizens have had three major wins in the in just the last few weeks. Let me lay them out for you, and then I want to talk tell you about why I think this is important for you and I to know here in South Carolina and whatever state that you're in. That because I know that this podcast does reach those outside of South Carolina. Two different carbon capture companies, Summit Carbon Solutions and Navigator CO2 Ventures, tried to strong arm various South Dakota counties into allowing them to install their carbon capture pipelines. When the counties told the two companies no, on the grounds that neither company could adhere to local standards, which Summit even admitted to, they even admitted we can't adhere to these standards, both companies sued the counties, saying that the counties overstepped their authority. So you hear what I'm saying? Counties said, nope, you guys don't adhere to our local standards. And the company said, wait a minute, you can't do that. You've overstepped your authority. You can't tell us what we can and cannot do and what standards we have to abide by. The lawsuits claimed that federal law preempts state and local government standards on federally regulated pipelines. And... That's just an assertion, in my personal opinion, that defies the United States Constitution. Enter South Dakota's Public Utilities Commission. On Monday of this week, the commissioners disagreed with Summit. South Dakota law requires that transmission projects adhere to all state and local requirements. Thereby, that means... The PUC unanimously denied Summit Carbon Solutions' application for a state permit to install a carbon capture pipeline across central and eastern South Dakota. This motion came from the PUC lead staff attorney, Kristen Edwards, who maintained that Summit could not meet pipeline moratorium and setback ordinances passed in four different counties. This this followed... Another unanimous denial handed down just last week by the PUC against Navigator CO2 Ventures for similar reasons. Navigator CO2 Ventures could not meet county setback decrees, nor could it prove that its pipeline would not pose a serious threat to people and the environment. Do you hear that? They couldn't even prove that this thing was safe for the citizens of South Dakota or the environment of South Dakota. And this is an agricultural area. I mean, you don't want this kind of, you don't want any company to come in and say, we don't know if it's safe for you in any area. But this is, ex- but it's especially harmful for the environment in a place that is agricultural. I mean, it's bad for all of our em- environments, uh, really, to be honest, if they're saying this. Like, we can't, can't 
tell you for sure that this thing is safe for the environment. Um, but for people whose livelihoods depend on the soil and the water and the air and all of that being as healthy as possible, this is especially detrimental. So additionally, just last month, the North Dakota Public Services Commission also unanimously denied Summit's citing, uh, citing permit application. One of the ob- objections that commissioners raised was the company had failed to follow state setback laws. Basically, all three of these cases saying, look, the local and state requirements supersede everything else. And the and, and Summit tried to make the argument that, look, uh, we're federally regulated, and if the feds say it's okay, we can just run right over you. And the PUC, the Public Utilities Commission, said, nope, our stand, our our rules, the local and state rules, supersede the federal government. It's really, you know, when you when you say it that way, that's what reveals how big of a story this really is. Because when did you? When was the last time that you heard about a commission in a state in a state looking at? A company at companies, two companies that are that have billions of dollars in subsidies and backing from the federal government, and they looked at those companies and they said, "No, nah, it's you know our way or the highway," and they just said, "We don't care about how the federal that you're regulated by the federal government. What we say here in our state and in our counties is what goes." I mean, it's it's actually incredibly inspiring, and of course, all Americans love the under uh, the, the Cinderella story, the underdog story, and that's literally, I think, what this is and what it was. And so, as Rebecca Terrell pointed out in her article on the subject, she said, despite these wins, the fight is far from over. Carbon capture is backed by billions in federal subsidies in support of President Joe Biden's net zero fantasies, her word, and both companies can appeal the PUC's rulings. And they can, and I'll more on that in a moment. Furthermore, both companies are private and they're for-profit companies, and both have threatened to use eminent domain to confiscate private property and farmland throughout that region. Terrell ended her article, though, with this quote from Brian Jord of Domina Law, uh, of Domina Law Group, that, who is representing uh, many of the farmers and la- landowners in South Dakota in defense of their private property. Uh, and this is what he, he explained what's likely to happen after the PUC ruling. And he said, you know, basically we, that they expected those businesses to go back to the counties and beg those counties for some sort of leniency for them to do something. The same counties that they just tried to strang- strong arm, that they just sued, they're going to go back to and, and beg for something. But this is, the, this is a, a quote from him. But at the end of the day, the route they've proposed is not intelligent. It doesn't fit within South Dakota values and county ordinances. And if they want to come back, fine, that's their right. But come back with a better plan and a better route and listen to the people this time. End quote. Do you hear what he's telling them? Uh, you're, You're welcome to try to come back. But the rule of law for South Dakota is the local and state law. And you need to be within South Dakota values and county ordinances. Basically telling the federal government and the agencies, the companies that they are backing to go pound sand. 
He's like, look, uh, I don't care. You have to, if you want to do business here, you need to share in South Dakota values and county ordinances. Man, I wish some folks down in Columbia in South Carolina had that kind of perspective, especially with this Volvo garbage that we've agreed to. Companies that come in here and they bring all their woke ideologies, they bring all of their ESG and all of that. We've talked about that a few weeks ago. You know, they, they bring all of these things in with them and we just bend over backwards because quote unquote, we want, you know, we want the business. They're bringing jobs. They're bringing jobs. Woo. Yay. They're destroying our South Carolina values while they're at it. But Hey, at least we're going to have two pennies to rub together. Where South Dakota told him, say, yeah, you're welcome to come, but you got to play by our rules. You see, South Dakota citizens aren't saying, no way, never, not going to happen, nada. They're willing to work with these companies, but they want them to abide by their rules, their values, and consider their safety and livelihoods. And you know what? That's not unreasonable. It's not. That's fair. And this brings me to my main point. We can win even against companies backed by billions of dollars and the federal government. We can force them to work with us and for us rather than permitting them to run right over the top of us and strip our state and our localities, our counties, of our value system, the things that we care about. How do we do this? How do we do this? By having the right people in local office. And I know, I know, I hear you. I say this all the time. I say all the time that the answer is at the local level. And I think that most people just roll their eyes at me when I say that. And I get it. I hear you. I can hear the eye rolling through the microphone. But this is a perfect example of that working out in real life. Do you have any idea who is on your local public utilities commission? Anybody? Any idea? Or how they're appointed? Let me, let me bring you some information about that. Commissioners serving at 35 state-level utility regulatory agencies nationwide are selected by the state's governor. In Washington, D.C., commissioners are selected by the mayor. And, of course, you know, the U.S. president selects the members of the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. In two jurisdictions, that would be Massachusetts and Tennessee, commissioners are appointed by individuals other than the chief executive of the jurisdiction. And the commissioners at seven agencies are selected through statewide direct voter elections, while commissioners in six jurisdictions are elected by district commissioners in two jurisdictions. And in two jurisdictions... South Carolina and Virginia, they're elected by the General Assembly. So there's a couple of ways that different states do this, all right? 35 are selected by the state's governor. Uh, Washington, D.C. does it by the mayor. Um, you've got, uh, you know, statewide direct voter elections in seven different states. And then uh, six jurisdictions, they are elected by district South Carolina and Virginia are the only two where they're elected by the General Assembly. We elect judges in South Carolina via the General Assembly as well. And I have long believed, as does my father, who's far more intelligent than I am and experienced in all this than I am, so we're in agreement on this, 
that this paves the way for a lot of, quote, you scratch my back and I'll scratch yours kind of relationships between South Carolina judges and lawyers. I mean, legislatures that elect them. Do you hear what I'm saying? A bunch of lawyers in office are appointing the judges they will then bring their cases to. What are the chances those judges will then rule justly when they're staring into the eyes of the person that got them their judicial position? And that's why I say <laughs> that they're that I have an issue with the relationship between South Carolina judges and the lawyers or the legislators that elect them. Because we got a whole lot of lawyers down in Columbia working as legislators and legislators. And and there's a reason. And then there's a reason for where we're at judicious judicially in South Carolina. But I will say this while I have a lot of doubts regarding judges being elected by the General Assembly simply due to the work relationship between many of the lawyers in public office and South Carolina judges, I do realize it would be quite the undertaking to demand every position be filled via a statewide election. If we're, you know, if we're going to throw in commissioners and we're going to throw in all, all the judges and we're going to, you know, if I was going to say everything needs to be a statewide it would be difficult to know everything that there that we should know about every position. In South Carolina, we have seven commissioners representing seven districts. Maybe votes by district is a better option for our state. Break it up, you know, let let district one elect their commissioner and district two would elect their commissioner. I won't pretend to know the very best answer on this, but I do know of our seven commissioners, four are lawyers. <laughs> And one of those lawyers, you're not going to believe this, you are not going to believe this, started his career before law school as a rep for a pharmaceutical company. Any guesses on which pharmaceutical pharmaceutical company? Anybody want to guess? What, what pharmaceutical company out there could this guy have worked for? Well, if you guessed Pfizer, you would be correct. This same commissioner also has a long, and I mean long, long list of racial intersectionality points listed on his commissioner bio. That's very concerning to me, to be completely honest, as I read through this, as I read through his bio. One of the three commissioners that does not have a law degree, I, I looked into all of these folks that raised flags for me. She... She also attends a Circular Congregational Church. I saw that name and I said, what? And so I looked into it and they're right on their website on the very front page. They affirm all the woke idols, including all the LGBTQIA plus identities. And they say this, that, it's their, that their faith revolves around loving God, our neighbors, and the earth as ourselves. Excuse me? They just inserted Their own were I, I, I don't even know what to say to that, really. It's appalling. That is not how the Bible verse goes. That is not a quote from God's word. They've assert, inserted their own idol into that Bible verse. Now, I'm not saying 
being a lawyer automatically makes you a bad person and unfit for office. Okay, I'm not going to say that. But I do wonder why we have so many lawyers currently appointed to this office. Is there a bit of nepotism going on in South Carolina politics? I think that's a fair question to ask. South Dakota has three commissioners. And of those three, none are lawyers. And while I don't have all the answers on how to best, best appoint commissioners here in South Carolina, South Dakota elects their commissioners in statewide elections, and that seems to be working pretty well for them. So maybe we should reconsider how it's done here, or at the very least, be paying attention to who our General Assembly appoints to this position. Because in all honesty, they just saved a lot of people's property, possibly lives in South Dakota. That's a whole lot of power. A whole lot of power that they wield. And you and I here in South Dakota can't name a single name of the seven people that wield that kind of power over you and I here in the state of South Carolina. So maybe it's about time that we start reading up on them and paying attention to who our General Assembly is appointing at the very least and maybe attempt to make moves in changing how these folks are appointed. All right, that's it for today. Hope you have a great week and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to The Hannah Miller Show. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast. This podcast is produced by Bob Sloan Audio Productions. If you'd like to find out more about Hannah or to schedule her for a speaking event, go to her website, thehannahmillershow.com.